Well, we met Jonah last week and discovered that there's a lot more to that story than meets the eye. God showed a heart of compassion towards pagans who do not call him by the name of Yahweh. The Ninevites were the, like, if you were going to write a story to tell the Israelites, the Ninevites would be the great choice of villain. They were like the worst possible example of people that the Lord should hate, at least as far as the Israelites are concerned, right? I mean, they're, they're bitter enemies at this point in time. And when those people, those Ninevites who did not know Yahweh listened anyway and repented and turned away from evil, Yahweh had compassion on them and did not destroy them. And as you all pointed out when we were talking about it, this story was for the benefit of the Israelites. And if you pondered it some more during the week, you might have begun to wonder if perhaps Jonah himself was a stand-in for the Israelites in the story. Remember, they're supposed to be leading the world to God. Way back in Exodus, they were called to be a kingdom of priests. But instead, they are acting like Jonah, giving lip service to God, all the while running in the complete opposite direction, and then getting mad because God won't smite their enemies. I mean, it would be funny if it wasn't actually a life or death situation for them. God is trying so hard to get this message through to them. We left Jonah pouting and angry up in Assyria last week, while in Israel, wicked King Jeroboam II has been enjoying a healthy expansion of Israel's boundaries. The Lord does this in spite of Jeroboam's wickedness, because Israel is in danger of shrinking right out of existence. The Lord is doing everything possible to give them one more chance to turn away from their path to destruction. We covered pretty much everything Jeroboam did last week. He ends up reigning a really long time, like 41 years. But in Judah, there's a new king named Azariah. He's barely 16 years old and is made king when the people get fed up with his father and assassinate him. Azariah is also called Uzziah. Uzziah is apparently his throne name, while Azariah is his given name. And there's another man named Zechariah, probably a priest, who teaches Uzziah the ways of the Lord. We know nothing about Zechariah. We do know he's not the same Zechariah as the prophet who has a book in the Bible. Last week, we saw that the Assyrians had weakened Aram, that's that pink part up there, so much that the king of Israel, Jeroboam II, was able to expand Israel's boundaries, the the yellow circle, into Aram. This is for the first time in a long time that Israel has been able to expand like this. And with Israel and Aram thus occupied fighting each other, King Uzziah in Judah, the big blue circle, is able to focus on his enemies to the south and to the east. He conquers the Philistines along the coast, as well as Arabs and others living south of Judah, and he's able to bring the Ammonites across the Jordan into submission as well. The chronicler says his fame spreads as far as the border of Egypt. 
Uzziah also rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down in war. He adds corner towers to fortify the city. He has building campaigns all over Judah. He digs new cisterns and establishes a thriving program of food production. He also has a well-equipped and well-trained standing army. He even invents new weapons so the soldiers can shoot arrows from the corner towers and hurl large stones from the walls. Uzziah is a big deal, and he's a big success. The Lord really blesses him. So now we've got two strong kings, one in Israel and one in Judah. Aram is no longer a threat, and even Assyria has had to withdraw for a bit to reorganize and regroup. So this is sort of a second golden age for both Israel and Judah. Both of them are fat and happy. Well, at least the rich people are. The poor people, not so much. So remember how I said King Uzziah set up a big food production program? One of the things he does is establish huge herds of sheep and goats and other cattle and he hires shepherds to tend them. And one of these shepherds is a man named Amos. Now, Amos is just an ordinary guy. He's a shepherd. He also takes care of the sycamore fig trees. He's minding his own business, doing his job out in the fields just a few miles south of Bethlehem when the Lord says, go prophesy to my people Israel. (laughs) Like, Out of the blue, the Lord says this. You can imagine the conversation Amos has with the Lord at this point. Amos is not a prophet. He's not part of a school of prophets. He hadn't even got any prophets in his family. And look at the map. Amos is from Judah. That's where he lives and works. But the Lord is calling him to go prophesy to Israel. Oh, brother, poor Amos. But Amos actually leaves his flocks and goes and says exactly what the Lord tells him to say. It's like we talked about a few weeks ago. He can't seem to keep from doing it. He, He feels this tremendous urgency. The book of Amos is only nine chapters long. It's longer than the ones we've covered so far, but it's still relatively short. What gets me excited about sharing it with you today is that you all will actually recognize and understand the significance of the nations and the kings he prophesies about. You will totally get this because you now know that the geography of the region is like a whole nother character in the Bible. You will get the drama in his words in ways you might not have had a clue about before. Like the other books of prophecy, Amos's book is set as poetry. It has a rhythm and cadence. In the first two chapters are a series of stanzas that all start like this. For three sins of XYZ nation, even for four, I will not relent. It's a literary device. It doesn't mean the Lord is counting out three or four sins. It's just part of the poetry. It gives rhythm to the spoken word. Remember that this was 
Hebrew, it, all of these stories were meant to be heard. There's lots of um, puns and rhymes and plays on words in the spoken Hebrew that, that get lost. But here's one we can see. We can see this for three sins, even for four. I will not remit, relent, da, 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 da. And then it's repeated. The Lord tells Amos to name one or two of the specific wrongs each nation did to Israel. You'll recognize all these nations as historic and persistent enemies of Israel and often of Judah as well. First up is Aram, whose capital, as you know, is Damascus. The Lord says, because she threshed Gilead with iron teeth, I will send fire on the house of Hazael. You all remember Hazael and how he became king of Aram uh, back when Elisha was involved. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of wickedness. The people of Aram will go into exile. Notice something about the wording here. Amos is speaking to the Israelites, but the Lord is first talking about all the punishment he's going to visit on the other nations who have oppressed them all these years. Amos is not speaking to the foreign nations themselves. So he's not speaking to Aram. He's speaking to the Israelites about how the Lord is going to make um, all those years of injustice right. Next come the Philistines. Because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom, I will consume the fortresses of Gaza with fire. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and of Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron until the last of the Philistines is dead. And you all will recognize those names of four of the five big major city-states within the country of the Philistines. Next comes Tyre, just north of Israel. This is a major port city representing Phoenicia, where Jezebel was from. Because she broke your treaties of brotherhood, which, as you know, it, it was this treaty, the intermarriage between Phoenicia and Israel. Um, she broke your treaties of brotherhood and sold whole communities of captives to Edom. I will consume the fortresses of Tyre with fire. So with all this carrying off of captives to Edom, you know Edom's got to be on the list. Clearly, they were slave traders. Edom is um, the nation descended from Esau long ago, Jacob's twins, twin brother. They're supposed to be kinfolk, brothers to the nation of Israel. Israel was another a name for Jacob. So they're supposed to be kinfolk. But from the very beginning, they've been enemies, even while the twins were in the womb. When the Hebrews were trying to enter the promised land long, long ago, the Edomites blocked their passage. And they've clearly purchased Israelites as slaves. And the Lord says, because he pursued you, his brother, with a sword and slaughtered your women because of his constant, unchecked rage and anger, I will send fire to consume the fortresses of Basra. Next up, Amman, another nation to the east of the Jordan that has been a perennial 
enemy of Israel. The Lord says, because you ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead, which is over in this area, in order to extend your borders, I will set fire to the walls of Rabbah. Your fortresses will be consumed on the day of battle. Your king will go into exile. You know that Moab can't be left out here. And sure enough, it's next. They also were really horrible when the Israelites were trying to escape from Egypt, and they've been hostile ever since. We've seen a a few positive interactions. This was Ruth's home, and they also gave safe harbor to David's parents while he was being chased by Saul. But their God is Kamash, one of the ones that requires child sacrifice. It's one of the idols Yahweh particularly hates. But none of these things are what the Lord cites as the egregious sin of Moab. Instead, the Lord says, he burned to ashes the bones of Edom's king. I mean, this isn't even a sin against Israel. It's a sin against Edom. As far as I know, this incident is not recorded in any of the books of the Bible. But the general idea here is that the Moabites burned the bones of the king of Edom as a way of dishonoring the conquered Edomites. In their day, it was a big deal that a king's body should be buried in the tomb of the kings. Remember, that's why the Lord decreed Jezebel's body would be utterly destroyed so that no one could point to her tomb and say, there lies Jezebel. It's kind of like the ultimate wiping out So intentionally and maliciously burning the bones of a king to ash would be a terrible thing to do in that culture. The Lord says, I will send fire on Moab to consume their fortresses. Moab will go down in war. I will destroy her ruler and kill all her officials with him. Well, that takes care of all the surrounding nations, except one, Judah their closest brothers, the very place Amos is from. And yet the Lord has something to say to Judah too. Because they have rejected the law of Yahweh and have not kept his decrees, because they have been led astray by gods who are not gods, I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. How it must have broken Amos's heart to have to proclaim this terrible prophecy about his own homeland. So at this point, the Israelites, they're feeling pretty good. I imagine Amos is getting invited to all the best dinner parties. Even the king has heard of him. This is terrific news for Israel. But the Lord's not done yet. The Lord has something to say to Israel, too. Israel doesn't just rate a stanza in the poem. Israel gets blasted with three chapters worth of the Lord's wrath. It's worth reading in its entirety, but here are the high points, or maybe I should say the low points, the sins that have aroused the Lord to take action. They sell the innocent into slavery. They trample the heads of the poor as if they were dust on the ground. They deny justice to the oppressed. 
They profane my holy name. Father and son both, quote, use the same girl and they do it brazenly by any altar they can find. They take fines or, quote, taxes from the poor and squander the money to gratify themselves. I protected you. I fed you. I sent you prophet after prophet. I raised up holy men, Nazarites, sworn to sobriety. And you despised them. You forced the Nazarites to drink wine. You silenced my prophets. The Lord is going to set things right with all those other nations. But he's also going to set things right in Israel. I will crush you. Your strength will not save you. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked. I chose you out of all the people on earth and you have despised me. I will punish you for your sins. This word for punish is the same one we've run across before. It has roots in the sense of a foreman holding his workers accountable. The Lord is going to hold Israel accountable for her deeds. The Lord is going to set things right again, whatever that may take. But then there's a whole section where the Lord says, you know, this really shouldn't be a surprise to you. We have walked together and talked together. I have told you over and over and over again in so many ways. This is a natural consequence of your actions. If you read chapter three, you'll see the Lord actually uses a bunch of examples from nature to illustrate this. And he says, the Lord Yahweh does nothing without revealing it to his prophets first. I told you, I warned you, I tried to get your attention, but you ignored me. Then the Lord specifically addresses the rich people in Israel, the ruling class, the officials, the crooked priests, the ones who have been oppressing the poor and perverting justice. He says, I will destroy the altars. I will tear down the palaces and the mansions. And you rich women, you cows of Bashan and Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and then call to your husbands to bring you more drinks, you will be taken away with hooks through your nose. Sure. Go ahead, offer more sacrifices, and then send some more. Pretend you are holy. Boast about it like you always do. I have tried to get your attention. I sent famine, but you did not turn to me. I sent plagues, but you did not turn to me. Your sons died in war, and you still did not turn to me. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. Prepare to meet your God. Yikes. Now remember, none of this has happened yet. 
This is just the Lord sending Amos to prophesy that all these things will happen. So what happens next? The Lord lowers the boom, right? Mass death and destruction. Nope. This is the Lord God, Yahweh, full of mercy and compassion and tenderness. Slow, slow, slow to anger. Always warning clearly with signs and with words first. What happens next is this. This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek out your idols. Seek me and live. Or I will sweep through Israel like a fire. Seek good and not evil. And I actually will be with you just as you say I am. Hate evil. Love good. Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God of the armies will have mercy on the remnant left. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? So Amos uses a key phrase here that we first heard from the prophet Joel, the day of the Lord. Apparently, Israel keeps telling the old stories over and over, believing that Israel is special, chosen, exempt somehow from doing right, that no matter what they do, the Lord will come and crush their enemies in a grand and glorious day of the Lord. The Lord is trying to get them to see reality, truth, if you will. It will be a day of darkness, not light. I despise your religious festivals. Your holy assemblies are a stench to me. I will not accept your sacrifices. Away with your praise songs. I will not listen to any of this. Instead, let justice roll down like a river and righteousness like an enduring stream. But you insist on worshiping other gods, idols you make for yourself. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. So, wow, this hasn't happened yet, but it is clearly imminent. The Lord is dead serious. There's about to be a great reckoning, and all those who have oppressed The poor have been unjust and feathered their own nests at the expense of the poor. Those who have imposed taxes and fines that find their way into their own pockets. All of these complacent and unjust people, the Lord says, will be the first to go into exile. Then poor Amos has a series of dreams or visions that terrify him. He sees swarms of locusts that strip the land clean. And Amos cries, oh, Lord, forgive us. We cannot survive that. And so the Lord relents and says, this will not happen. Then he sees a great fire that dries up all the bodies of water and devours the entire land. And Amos cries, oh, Lord, forgive us. We 
we cannot survive that. And so the Lord relents and says, this will not happen either. Then Amos sees the Lord standing by a wall that has been built straight and true, true to plumb. And the Lord has a plumb line in his hand. A plumb line is a cord with a weight at the end of it. Builders use it to make sure their work is perfectly straight. And the Lord says, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. Well, when Amos starts saying all these things about Israel, that causes a huge flap. The priest of the altar at Bethel, which is a major place of idol worship, sends word to King Jeroboam II that Amos is prophesying that King Jeroboam himself will die by the sword and that Israel will go into exile. Then the priest tells Amos to get out and go back to Judah where he belongs. But Amos says, I didn't want to come in the first place, but the Lord took me from my flocks and made me come. You tell me to stop prophesying. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Your wife will become a prostitute and your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be taken away from you and you yourself will die in a pagan country because Israel will go into exile. The next chapter or so is the Lord lamenting the coming cataclysm. He shows Amos that no one will escape. There will be no place to hide. The Lord says, I will destroy the sin, this sinful kingdom from the face of the earth, but I will not destroy all the descendants of Jacob. I will restore Jerusalem. Remember, Judah was included in the nations to be punished. I will repair its broken walls. New wine will drip from the mountains, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. I will plant Israel in their own land, never to be uprooted again. Thus says the Lord your God. And so ends the prophecy of Amos. Since I count the Jonah story as an allegory rather than a prophecy, personally, that's just me personally, we've done two actual prophets now, Joel and Amos. A consistent message is starting to take shape. So we're going to look at it qu real quickly now, and I'll add it to the reference materials in the study guide so you can use it anytime you study one of the prophets. Number one, they say, they, these prophets consistently say, the Lord, I have tried so hard, but you have rejected me. Then they'll have a section about all the other nations you turn to will come and destroy you. Then third, I will restore justice, including punishing those nations for their own injustice and for hurting you. And this is all, you know, balled up in the whole day of the Lord language. And then your hearts will become clean. All nations will stream to me. I will restore you and your land, and there will be peace. This basic four-part pattern will help you keep the contents of the prophecies in logical order, even if the passages are jumbled up in any particular book. 
you'll see this pattern over and over again. So keep it handy. Watch for it. Recognize what part of it you're reading when you read a book of prophecy. So Amos was pretty intense. We'll go into our breakout groups now and ponder some of the things Amos brought up. That was like a whole college class in one seminary class. (laughs) 15 minutes and you get your degree. (laughs) It was an intensive. There was a lot there, right? Because it it just, it provides a a really good template pattern overview um, that's going to get fleshed out as we go through, you know, these next parts. But that's why, uh, I mean, I actually love that this chronologically is the way the Lord addressed it with the nations. The Lord like sent them simple messages (laughs) and then he got bigger messages and then, you know, a whole lot of more detailed messages are are happening. And so um, it, it actually, by following this kind of chronologically, we're following in the way the Lord unfolded it for these nations as well, which is pretty cool. So what did you all um, see as the difference between what the Lord was upset with all the surrounding nations for versus what the problem was as far as the Lord was concerned with Israel and Judah. I, I kind of cheated on that and read my footnotes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and my, my Bible basically said that the crimes of the countries surrounding Israel and Judah were crimes against humanity, basically. Um, And the crimes of Judah and Israel were crimes against God. Mm. I kind of took it the other way, that the crimes that the other nations surrounding, it was like war and, you know, taking people from one place and putting them someplace else. So it was more like it committed war crimes and where Israel and Judah created crimes against their own people. Mm. That's true. Mm -hmm. That's very perceptive. Both of those. What else did y'all, did y'all think of for that? Is that pretty, pretty much cover it. Okay. So um, then in question five, what was it? specifically speaking to Israel and Judah, what was it the Lord said he did want and he didn't want? Did you get that far? <laughs> he he said that he wanted justice and righteousness. And when he did, that's the quote about flowing down like a river. I mean, to me, that means that it that consumes us and that um, that flows over us and we, we can't help but be caught up in it. Whereas he didn't want the religious feasts or the assemblies and he didn't want the burnt, the grain offerings or the fellowship offerings and no, want your songs of praise. And I guess I looked at it that he felt that those were insincere, that they were doing all of that for show. And he wanted them to, he wanted their hearts to be in it. And um, 
So that's kind of the way I looked at it. Yeah. Isn't there another, um, another prophet? I can't remember who now, who basically said, you know, the, your sacrifices are a stench to my nostrils. I don't want any of this. I want your heart. Yes. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And part of what, what, um, was included in what the Lord did not want, you know, what he was accusing them of was, it was oppressing the poor specifically. It was, he was talking to the rich people who were lining their pockets and keeping the poor and from going to the courts for redress. I can't hear you, Renee, turn yourself on. I said, wow, because it sounds familiar about what some of this stuff is going on right now in the United States. And right, right. I mean, I mean, I, I, I was thinking today as I was putting some finishing touches on the on the lesson today, I was thinking, you know what, this lesson could get itself banned from bookshelves. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I can totally see that. <laughs> Somebody needs to read this in Congress. Yes. Amen. Yes. <laughs> All yeah. of our civic leaders, no matter whether they're in Congress or they're, you know, our, our local leaders. Right. And there's no way that the prophets often had to run for their lives. So when they would say stuff yes. like that. <laughs> Yes, exactly. And I, and I think underlying all of this, although um, Amos didn't use these exact words, um, certainly uh, when he was talking to the women and um, who, who are consistently called the cows of Bashan. <laughs> but, but, it just but, wrapped um, me up. I was like, oh. Yeah, that's not the only place they're called that, you know. It's, it's like no, you can just see them good. reclining and, and, you know, getting their <laughs> maidservants to do everything and, and calling for another cocktail. Oh, yes, I, you know, from their husband. I mean, it's just, you, we, we see this today in our lives, you know. But underneath all of these things that the Lord is so upset about is the root is the lack of humility. Mm. Yeah. It's the lack of humility before God and therefore towards your neighbor. Mm-hmm. People say it has to do, yeah. it all has to do with me. Yep. Yes. All about ego. It's all about me. Mm hmm. People, I mean, look at the, you know, the TV shows about the housewives of there and the housewives of those aren't housewives. No, no. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the, what did you say? I'm sorry, Mr. Wood. I said they're the cows of Bashad. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> we, we need a show, you know, right? <laughs> show. <laughs> Probably wouldn't you don't be have a successful consumer uh economy if you don't get people to always be thinking about themselves ah uh, that's right and and i and, and we we all know as christians the quote love god you know with all your heart love your neighbor as yourself but what if you substituted the phrase be humble before god mm-hmm. and be humble before your neighbor what's the what's the micah quote uh, let, love justice 
Yes. Uh, yes. Justice and mercy, mercy and walk humbly with your God. God. Yeah, perfect. Yep. Micah 6, 8. Yep. yep. So, um, so then finally, uh, the Lord shows Amos these visions and it's terrifying and he gets, and, and Amos is like, we're not going to survive any of this. And he finally settles on the plumb line. What did you all think about the plumb line? Woody had some really good things to say. Well, it just seems to me like it it refers to uh, keeping the Lord's uh, commandments, walking the straight and narrow. Um, don't uh, vary either to the left or the right, but follow what God says. Exactly. We thought it might refer to following the law and the justice in the courts. Hmm. Mm-hmm. We also talked a little bit about how it reminded us of the tabernacle rules. Gotcha. So y'all, y'all were seeing the, the, the laws in this. Okay, so I want to take you a different direction. The Lord said he was going to set the plumb line in their hearts. Mm-hmm. The Lord said that, that as a result of this fire, this living fire, this refining fire, we will be changed. And our hearts will be straight and true. Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through Israel like a fire and will devour them. But what have we seen in all of our lessons when the Lord actually does show up with fire? You know, what was burned, even though it was burned to ash, what was left was holy. Mm -hmm. No matter how awful it started out as. We've seen that in several lessons so far. This whole plumb line, um, the idea of plumb line being set inside us is a fire of truth being set inside of us. Do you see that? Do you see that the Lord is saying, I am not only going to purify all this crap out of all these nations, I'm going to cleanse your hearts. The fire will be in you. You will be clean. Everybody will be cleansed of all this injustice and pride and all of these things that we're talking about. And when I was talking about the tabernacle, I was talking about the Lord has tried before to come and dwell with his people in the tabernacle. He's tried to put mm. truth among them that way. He's going to try a different way now. He's going to try to dwell inside. This is the first hint we have of this. Do you think, Gail, that that um, this, you know, this new approach is God's way of preparing the people for no longer having the temple or the tabernacle because they will be in exile, but God would still be with them in exile. Wow. What do y'all think? That's, that sounds really probable to me. (laughs) (laughs) You know, things are about to change and, and my, and, 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 um, 
And the Lord's promise was that this plumb line would live. I mean, it, the Lord will dwell with us always. And so there's the whole day of the Lord in the future kind of language, you know, but the holiness of God, one way or another, God always meant the holiness of God to dwell with us. Why can I just said it that way? <laughs> I feel like it's so confusing because I find myself like, I think even Kelly had said, we we're taught to almost fear this language and the way it's written because it's like it, you have to do A plus B or you're burnt to hell when in reality, none of that was communicated. It was, it's the opposite. It's God's unconditional love that is saying, I will dwell in you and I will make your hearts right. But none of that is what comes out when you read it literally. So why can they just have put this loving, compassion God instead of this angry, bitter God who's telling us do it my way or the highway? Doesn't make us good for wartime camp stories. <laughs> and these were well, warrior, these were warrior cultures, and they were living through this violence. They were living. Well, through and also, go ahead, Gail. Nope, go ahead. Oh, also in our group, I, we we talked about that, and I I brought up too that we look at we can look at this from a New Testament point of view, where Jesus took care of that for us. You know, I mean, so we don't have to be so afraid that we're going to, if we step off the line, that we're going to, you know, be burned alive. We have the opportunity to return. But also the Lord is not drawing with fine lines. These are great big brush strokes. Be just. Don't steal from the poor. Don't oppress people. Those are pretty big lines, pretty big brush strokes. This is not a little teeny tiny path you're going to miss by accident. Right. I yeah, got to go. Bye. So, yeah. Bye. Um, you know, Scott Bye, brought up the, in, in our group, Scott brought up the, the, the point about the fire being a refining fire. Like you said, burning away all of this extra garbage and what's left is what's valuable. And, and then I was thinking also about, you know, what you were saying, Gail, about the fact that, that um, in answer to, to um, Erica, right? Or Ellen, I'm sorry, I guess you guys haven't <laughs> got your name. You, you need name tags on your foreheads. Um, <laughs> Um, Ellen has glasses. That, you you can okay. just you can just say Elica. <laughs> okay, Elica. Okay, there you go. <laughs> um, is is that this is not the one and only warning? And I think a lot of times in modern churches that are very literalist in their reading, they take this as you know you take one step off the straight and narrow, and bam, you are smitten. You are going to hell for eternity, and you're going to be burned to a crisp for eternity, where. God is over and over and over and over saying, this is the consequence of what you're doing. This is the path you're on. And if you don't change, this is the end result of where you're going. But if you change even now, I will 
bring about blessing and restoration and, you know, over and over again, this, this, you know, I, I'm telling you what the consequences of your path are, but you can still, it's not too late. You can still change. I also want to point out that none of this had anything to do with sex, gender, orientation, none of the above, not mentioned at all. In fact, the only time in all of this that God has mentioned sex so far has been when it is ritual prostitution done as an act of worship, which was in this lesson. Okay, I have a question. Where did all this, for lack of a better term, fire and brimstone interpretations of the Bible, God's word, how did that all get started? Why did people take, why did churches or people take it so far out of context of what God actually is saying if you read the words and what's going on in the culture? I don't know that I can adequately answer a why question because I'm not them. They didn't have a mama gal. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, um, you know, people are taught this by people whom they trust. And they take it based on that trust from that teacher. And it was, I am standing on the shoulders of giants, literally. I have the entire internet at the tips of my fingers. I had all of these world-class professors in seminary. Uh, We have access to so much more than those who had gone before us in terms of being able to look into it, to challenge it, you know? And so, um, as we will find out, as Christianity grew and built after the time of the Bible, it was, it was impacted dramatically by the vicissitudes of government at the time in the world and of how it needed to fit in order to survive of how it ended up being very quickly linked with empire and became a tool of government. And church became government with all the politics associated with that. Um, And so although there were clearly the Holy Spirit has allowed us to find Jesus, to find God, even through all of this infrastructure, hierarchy, layers and layers and centuries and centuries of using the words of scripture for government and hierarchical power gains, this truth will all, cannot be erased by that. And it cannot be manipulated by that. And so even if you did not have a teacher who had all these resources at her disposal to bring to bear, to present to you, I could still teach you about God if I knew none of that. 
and the spirit within you would resonate with the spirit in me. And you would know truth when you heard it. And you would know untruth when you heard it. You've known that all along. It's just you haven't had the weapons to fight back with. Okay, that makes sense. Do you, do you think this, you know, I go down these little rabbit trails sometimes. Um, do you think, Gail, that that is why um, Jesus talked to his disciples about unless you become like a little child you're going to miss the kingdom that as we get older and more jaded and more sure of our own opinions and everything we're not accepting simple messages it, they seem too simple yes they and, this, and, what i said about humility today is the core kernel it's the core kernel of what Jesus talked about. It's the core kernel of, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Humility before the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Pride is what gets in between us and God. And we put it in between us and other people. Self-love is another word for pride. Pardon, Julia? I was in a Bible study on Philippians um, yesterday. And we were talking about how humility was so central to that book as well. You know, the humility to be Christ-like. It really is key to all of this. And it's key for these nations. It's key for the leaders of the nations. The books we're reading are not directed at the poor people at the bottom. They were not directed at people who were doing their best. It was directed at people who knew they were doing wrong and who were leading the nation, forcing the nation to do wrong. And the Lord's just not going to have it. The Lord is always going to show up for the people who are being oppressed. And he's going to fix it. So when you talk about God smiting, you have to be, you know, you can't just say, well, God smites. You have to say, well, there's a little more to the picture than that. <laughs> you know? So... Anything else? We're about to end of our time. It, it's, a heavy, it's a heavy session. We're getting to, as you know, a heavy cataclysm, a big part. And um, next week, I think I'm going to, uh, I have some timelines and things that are going to help, help you get your bearing. In addition to this kind of little four-part template I gave you today that I'll put in the reference materials of the study guide, next week, there'll be a couple of timelines that are going to be really helpful. So I know, Julie, you're going to be gone. And, uh, you know, and if you're, those of you who are gone, you might want to look at the video for next week at, at some point, because um, there'll be some helpful stuff, I hope is I hope it's helpful stuff in there. So love to you all. See you next week. Bye. Love Bye. you guys. Bye. Thank you. Thank you, Gail. Thank you. Thank you.